Hey everyone, it's Jonathan Ryber, your host of the Think Bad, Do Good podcast here at Attack IQ, and I'm very pleased to have Christopher Friends here with us today. Welcome, Christopher. Thank you for having me. Great. So, Christopher, you are the head of information security at uh, at at Mount Sinai South NASA. Is that right? That's correct. Great. Well, obviously, the hospital sector and the healthcare sector is under siege um, through ransomware attacks and through the broader pressures of the coronavirus pandemic. We've seen a lot of attacks on that sector. So we're especially pleased to have you here today. Uh, and thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. And yes, it's definitely been a challenging year within healthcare, particularly during the pandemic with the spike in uh, ransomware attacks and other attacks. What is your role at the organization? And tell us about your security organization as much as you can. Sure. I'm the information security officer for Mount Sinai South Nassau. I'm probably best known within the healthcare community for uh, one, being the first person to do uh, zero trust within healthcare. And number two, for my work in medical device security, including the uh, recently released uh, Cloud Security Alliance um, Medical Device Incident Response Playbook, which I helped co-author which uh, was one of the first types of guidance to actually incorporate patient safety risks into the security decision-making process. That sounds really important. Tell us about your philosophy on cybersecurity. I'm very big on testing security. One of the things that I see that we get wrong as an industry over and over again is we consider security too much of an art form and not as much of a science as it should be taken. I think we tend to follow too many compliance-driven approaches. And while checklists can be useful, a checklist approach to security alone is not really an effective approach. I think we've seen time and time again that you can easily be compliant with the security standard and still be pretty insecure. And I think it's one of the things that we need to begin to change and mature as industry. And I'm constantly looking for ways to make security more measurable. I come from a scientific background. I got involved in healthcare many years ago as a drug designer. I used to develop computer algorithms for drug design. And I kind of never really lost that scientific approach to everything I do. So I want to try to always measure and try to make quantitative-based decisions for improving how I approach things, including security. So a lot of the work I've been doing recently has been focused on finding ways to actually measure the efficacy of the controls that we have in the organization and using those measurements and metrics we collect around that to find ways of improving security. That's awesome. Um, that obviously clearly resonates very much with us at Attack IQ, an outcomes-based approach that's data-driven. How have you found the MITRE TAC framework to be helpful in your in your search for evidence? I really like the MITRE attack framework. Um, I do like the pyramid of pain concept that it's based on, where if you uh, look at defenses that are higher up the pyramid of pain that target the TTPs, they're more effective than targeting things like uh, hashes or IP address blocking, which are easy for attackers to circumvent. Um, because based on the, my own quantitative testing, I find that holds very true. And I think MITRE attack provides a really great framework for identifying things the organization should be looking for. I think if we look at a lot of the traditional ways in which organizations tried to measure security, um, one of the things that was often present was they were not fine-grained enough. If we take a traditional KRI or KPI, let's say like mean time to detection, it's really great to have a goal of improving your mean time to detection. But one of the problems a lot of organizations run into is it's not really a granular enough measurement. If we look at why organizations fail to detect stuff, it's because they're not detecting the proper TTPs. So there's a more fundamental question needs to be asked first of, do we have the ability to actually detect all of the things we need to detect? Um, and figuring that out first will go a very long way towards improving that mean time to detection metric. So I think a lot of the metrics we use today are not fine-grained enough. And I think looking at MITRE attack and the different tactics and techniques that can be used against us provides us a really good way to identify what we need to be protecting 
uh, what we need to be detecting and um, use that as a basis for testing and evaluating the security that's in place within our organizations. How does it, how has it changed your approach to management for your organization? I think we've become very big on not just assuming uh, controls work. Uh, one of the things I think anybody who spent a long time in the industry has come to realize is that you can't just like check a box and assume you're safe. For example, a compliance framework might have a requirement to deploy a firewall. And it's, it's one thing to deploy a firewall, check the box, but having that firewall there does not mean you're secure. It doesn't say, you know, do you have proper egress filtering policies in place? Is DNS locked down properly? Are all the various other features and controls that should be built into that firewall actually there? And I think a lot of the breach and attack simulation and other tools, they're really great at helping to identify that you not just check the box, but you actually have all the configurations and the um, setups within the device done properly in order to protect your organization. That's awesome. You know, one of the one of the analogies I like to use is imagine if you built the best navy in the world, which the United States has, we've got the best navy in the world, but then you left it in port for a year, would you expect it to be able to go toe to toe with the People's Liberation Navy? And I don't think you would, because um, they wouldn't have exercised. But that's not what the military does. The military is training constantly, and we expect our military to do that. The interesting thing about cyberspace is it's given nation states, nation state actors, criminal groups, anyone all over the world the ability to target a civilian organization or a largely commercial or civilian organization, not to mention critical infrastructure or military organizations. And so there's a cultural, there's a bit of a cultural delta um, that's changing, I think, large, I mean, thanks to the advocacy of folks like you who believe in a threat informed defense to say, we need to prepare for what we know. We need to prepare for what the adversary is going to do against us. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about some of the practical changes you've made as a manager of your cybersecurity organization, as your security team, to, to wrap around this, the philosophy of a threat informed defense. And if you can talk a little bit about what that means from a zero trust standpoint, that would be great too. Sure. I think the best way to actually answer that question is how I got involved in zero trust originally. Back in 2015, the hospital I worked at at the time, uh, we became kind of concerned that the writing was on the wall for a hospital to actually eventually suffer from a mass malware attack. It hadn't really happened yet at the time. It was until 2017 that the first ransomware attack against the hospital uh, occurred. But back in 2015, we became really concerned with the possibility. So one of the things we decided to do was actually simulate a ransomware attack at the hospital. And what we did is we took the ICAR test string, which for anybody unfamiliar with it, it's a harmless string of characters that years and years ago, the antivirus makers all got together and agreed to treat as a virus. So it provides a safe but effective way in order to test um, antivirus and other security configurations. So what we did is we wrote a Perl script that took that test string and attempted to copy it from one PC to all of the other PCs in the organization to attempt to um, quote unquote, infect the PCs and you know, trigger the antivirus alarms. We kind of wanted to mimic malware spreading through the organization. And we learned a lot from doing that exercise. Uh, for example, we learned some um, you know, really simple stuff like the VDI desktop configuration and the physical desktop configuration were done by two different engineers. And some of the settings in the VDI desktops made them more resistant to the attack than some of the physical desktops. So we're able to you know, move some of those changes over and take advantage of that. But one of the controls that really stood out at the time was network segmentation. Now, as a hospital, we had a segmented network, but it was segmented by department. And to kind of go back to the compliance point, we definitely checked the box. We exceeded what most hospitals have had at the time because most hospitals did not have a segmented network at all. But 
even with that control in place, one of the things we learned from doing the simulation was that the control was not meeting the required efficacy in order to actually protect the organization. Because as a hospital, if we were to lose our entire emergency department or entire radiology department, because we were segmenting by department, it was still going to be disastrous hospital operations. So actually simulating the attack really showed that the control we had was not fine-grained enough to actually meet our needs. And that kind of got us going down the, the path to zero trust. And that was kind of my entry both into, I guess, breach and attack simulation and threat informed defense, uh, as well as a zero trust. It's so cool. So you're really at the cutting edge of, I mean, theoretically, I remember in 2010, when I first started working in cyber, I was like, we need to prepare for certain kinds of malware proliferation entering into the wild, right? Like that was like the thing. But you in 2015, you, you were like, that the, the scenario you envisioned is a doomsday scenario for a hospital. And so you were, now how did you find when in your team, as you were doing this exercise, can you talk a little bit about some of the resistance you encountered and how you overcame it? Sure, actually I didn't get much resistance from leadership. And that was one of the interesting things we did is when we ran the simulation, it was only myself, the CIO and the CEO who knew the simulation was going on. So it was actually yep. a real test for the security and IT teams as well. And that also identified some other areas, I guess we could have improved upon because while I was happy to see that the team was able to track down the quote unquote machine that was infecting all the other machines, the one running the script and pull it from the network, there were definitely things that could have been done to improve the response time. So even on the people yep. side, we were able to make a lot of improvements to the incident response process, how we train staff, and we used that as an opportunity to test and evaluate that as well. That's a great point. So one of, one of our colleagues, um, uh, Lewis Honor, he's talked a lot about human performance factors in cybersecurity operations. He's really a great strategist on this front. He's, uh, he's, he's over at Bupa. And in this narrative, the example he says is like, you could train an individual, uh, if you're running a breach and attack simulation platform against your, against your program, you may find that there's a degraded security control. The question then becomes, why is it degraded? And you investigate, you dig in a little bit further and you find, lo and behold, the person that was supposed to clear on an MSSP contract has left their job. And that's okay, they left their job. The question then becomes, why? And theoretically, it's like only by investigating would you find that they're like potentially, this is a theoretical example, folks in the security organization weren't getting paid enough. So he could then call the head of human resources and say, you need to elevate the salary. And that's, that's an interesting reveal from a human performance side for your organization about how testing elevates certain kinds of business value. I wonder if you have any similar stories in your mind from your experience as, as a threat informed defender. That, that come to mind for, it could either be that or it could be about technical innovations or negotiations with contracts that that have you, that the data has allowed you to leverage. Sure, definitely more on the, the technical side than on the, the HR side, but um, testing definitely reveals, I guess, all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't expect. Um, you know, for example, I'm a big proponent of uh, bringing testing on board to the product evaluation standpoint. So for example, if you're you know evaluating a new antivirus solution or whatever security control it happens to be, to actually run some of these tests on it, see what products work, see what products don't work, um, see how they perform under a you know real scenario. Um, so you'll often reveal a lot about the products that you won't get in the vendor pitches, and it makes it really nice to compare products as well. So that's another angle I like to take is involving six simulations in some of the evaluations we do before we purchase a product. Yeah, that makes great sense. Now, you at Attack IQ, we've recently, in response to Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine, We've built adversary emulations and scenarios and assessments to test your security program against Russia-based threat behaviors 
from MitreTrack and more broadly. And you, I know, have, have been using some of those. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits you've seen, if any? Yes, definitely. So we did run through a number of the attack IQ scenarios uh, dealing with uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine. And um, they were really interesting to do because it clearly showed us what controls work, what controls didn't work. But one of the things that we uh, gained out of it is we um, figured out some ways that we could improve our security further. So we've done a lot of compensating controls around our EDR and other stuff. So for example, some of the controls that we've identified through constant attack IQ simulations, not just related to the Russia one, but in general, is um, one of the EDR products that we use, for example, was having a hard time consistently picking up PowerShell 2 ground downgrade attacks. So one of the security improvements we made is we disabled PowerShell 2 support on all of our endpoints to eliminate that as a threat vector. Um, so that's an example of some of the work the testing revealed. Uh, more recently, we're adding detections for things like PowerShell scripts or Python scripts downloading uh, executables from the internet. Because one of the things that we noticed is it's consistent in a lot of malware um, threat actor playbooks is that they will often, after initial infection of a machine, seek to download further payloads. So we're setting up detections and possibly preventions around that behavior in order to you know, further improve our security. And those are all ideas that came about through a lot of the testing that we were doing with the platform. That's wonderful to hear. Can you talk a little bit about why you think it's important or what is important to have um, in, a, in terms of a quantitative approach to measuring your security control performance? I think it's really time for security to become less of an art and more of a science. And I think we've seen the, the benefits to measuring security. If you take, for example, uh, the well-known example of the common NIST password policy. For years, NIST was recommending constantly changing your password as a way to improve security. And when somebody sat down and measured it, the current thinking has now changed that you're much better off having your users have a very long passphrase that gets changed a lot less frequently because it turned out the constant password changing was making people pick pretty poor passwords. So something that was designed to make security better actually made security worse. And I think that's far from an isolated incident. And I think the more we begin as professionals to measure security, the more we're going to find that, um, you know, some advice that might have been a common way to do things is not necessarily as productive as we you know, may think it is. Um, you know, other examples I've seen is, is let's take an example of a hypothetical public facing server. And let's say that that server is a potential compromise target because of a zero day exploit or other stuff. If you actually measure security around it, though, maybe you discover that the zero day is not as big a problem as the fact that maybe the rules that, of what that public facing server can communicate with internally to it are not locked down enough because there's always the potential for another zero day. Yes, you should patch and close that zero day, but it may not be the, the big problem. The bigger problem may be, as I said, um, un unrestricted communication with other stuff internally or some other issue that's also there. And the more you attack and try to exploit stuff like that, the more you'll identify those issues and be able to better lock them down. And what, what advice would you give to an organization that's thinking about whether to adopt breach and attack simulation or is just getting started with a breach and attack simulation platform? What advice would you give to folks trying to maximize a threat informed defense as you have? I, I'd say definitely start small. There are some things that are you know, easier than others. Uh, you know, for example, testing things like egress filtering policies, things like that, they're you know, relatively easy to, to go about and test. There's you know, lots of different scenarios. There's lots of different TTPs. So um, I would say start with some of the, the smaller ones, get comfortable at doing these types of simulations. But once you develop some comfort level, then I think it's time to look at some of the MITRE attack maps for the threat actors that are likely to target your vertical. 
So for example, healthcare ransomware is a big one. It makes the most sense to focus on the threat actors you're most likely to see. So once you're comfortable with doing breach and attack simulations, I would spend the bulk of the time focusing on the attack scenarios that are most relevant to your vertical. And are there organizations that you recommend folks partner with in order to, to understand that? Or if you, let's imagine you, have, you don't have a, a, a big security team, um, you have limited resources. Maybe, maybe you're having to go back in time to the beginning of your career at this point, but how, what, what advice would you offer to smaller organizations like that? I think you could definitely reach out to other organizations to partner with, um, but I'm also a big proponent of some of the breach and attack simulation platforms because while partnering somebody for a pen test is nice, pen tests tend to be one-off point in time type things where it might not be a year before you, you get results like that again. The nice thing about incorporating a breach and attack simulation platform is um, you can continually do these tests. So the tests don't have to be a one-off. You can keep you know, verifying security. You can check new scenarios as they come out. You can do that on a more continual basis. I mean, if you're a really big organization, it's great to also supplement that with some of your own internal red team capabilities. But um, you know, I think for smaller organizations, a breach and attack simulation platform can go a long way towards helping them meet those goals without the need to have a red team explicitly. That's super helpful. And you're kind of like, you're such an advocate for the approach because you've, you've maximized it. I, I appreciate that very much. I'm actually wondering more from like the initial threat planning standpoint, right? Like if you know, like if you're, let's say you're not a hospital, right? Let's say you're in a different sector and you're trying to identify which of the threats that you should focus on the most. Miter attack in the, in the enterprise matrix gives some indication of that. It does, right? yes. But let's, so let's say like that's one way for you to get started. You can go into attack and you can use it. And then you can actually, if, you're, if, you, if you are using a breach and attack simulation platform, you can be strategic about the assessments you might use. But I'm actually thinking like, are you, you, know, are you a part of the HSI SAC? Uh, those kinds of organizations that can help folks gain, improve their threat perspective. Because there's a little bit of threat, in, like threat planning and threat being threat informed, or you have to sort of be thinking about threats on your own. So I'm wondering if you have any comment on that issue. Sure, I, I think it, it definitely does pay to be a part of the HISAC and other things to get knowledge of threats. I also think it pays to look at a lot of the breaches a lot of organizations uh, face. Uh, for example, in healthcare, as, as we said, ransomware is a very big threat vector. And if you look at a lot of the hospitals that suffered ransomware attacks, one of the things that um, has really bit them is a lack of network segmentation. So um, one of the things I'd be a very big proponent of is kind of going back to that 2015 simulation I did is taking a look at how effective your network segmentation actually is. Because until you actually sit down and measure that, just as we did in 2015, we had a network that was segmented, segmented better than most hospitals at the time. But when we actually tested it, we found out it wasn't granular enough. And um, for healthcare in particular, that's one of the big ones I would start with because that seems to be the commonality in a lot of the ransomware attacks that health organizations see. That's wonderful. And the phrase that I, so I, I wrote an article in Lawfare with a, a guy named Matt Glenn, who at that point was SVP for product at Illumio, which is an old employer of mine. So he and I are friends. Um, but this, this argument was, we, we called for validated zero trust. You know, zero trust, but validate, right? To, to build off of uh, Reagan's aphorism to Gorbachev in the, in the first part of the Cold War. Um, zero trust, but validate. And so we actually wrote a guide. We're going to, probably going to rebrand it as zero, uh, zero Trust and Miter Attack, the CISO's Guide to Zero Trust and Miter Attack. But you and I are definitely on the same page. Um, it's great to have you. Are there any further thoughts before we let you go back to fighting bad guys uh, in cyberspace? I would say just as reiterate that never assume that your security is going to work. Always take the time to actually test and validate. Yeah, I mean, the, the, so the, the triumvirate that I've been repeating heavily is assume breach and plan for known threats. 
invest in best-in-class defense capabilities, including people, processes, and technologies, and then exercise to validate your performance. That's the rule of three. If you have four, you forget the fourth one every time. That's why I stick to three. Does that land with you? Do you like that triumvirate? I do, yes, very much. Good, great. Christopher, one thing I wanted to ask you is, as a part of your process in looking at Attack IQ, when you were thinking about it, what were some of the tools, what were some of the things that appealed to you about, about the platform and the company to lead you to it? I liked the, the deep integration of uh, MITRE ATT&CK. So one of the things that we've been very big on is actually doing like MITRE ATT&CK stock assessments. Um, we've been very big on doing threat-informed defense. And I liked a lot of the ways the product uh, directly mapped to the ATT&CK framework. And did you, did you use Attack IQ Academy and have you found it to be useful? We, we did use the Attack IQ Academy for two reasons. Uh, one, when we were doing product evaluations, it was really great because you had basically training available on not just MITRE ATT&CK and breach and attack simulation generically, but some of the classes on the Attack Academy actually walked through how the product uh, worked. So it was also um, a great way to supplement uh, the evaluation that we're doing of the product. That's wonderful. I'm really glad to hear that. And we'll be sure to invite your team to any demos and trainings that we have for the new content that's coming down the pike. Well, it's a pleasure having you on. Uh, for for listeners of the podcast, they may not know, my, um, my mom was born in Queens, so I have a special residence for New Yorkers, and I've been really looking forward to having you on. And you do not disappoint, sir. You are leading the way philosophically and operationally, and uh, I wish you well in, 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 in all that you're doing to defend your hospital. They're lucky to have you. Thank you.